bills, I want money. This yes. is hell. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell in February 2022. We were repeatedly being told by the Biden administration and the establishment U.S. press outlets that every day we were careening toward what was increasingly becoming an inevitable and unavoidable war that would start with a completely unprovoked invasion of Ukraine by the Russia's military, which was led by Russian President Vladimir Putin, who is an evil madman dedicated to restoring the power of imperial Russia that predates the more, most recent Russian evil, the Soviet Union. That's what we were being told in a very concise way, I guess about what was taking place in Russia and Ukraine. The government and the media were taking every opportunity they could here in the United States to tell us that the Russian invasion of Ukraine was inevitable, unavoidable, and completely unprovoked. But is anything inevitable and unavoidable? Following 9-11, we were told so often that a war on Iraq was inevitable and unavoidable, the media was calling that time, the 18 months from the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon to the invasion of Iraq, as the run-up to war. We now know that war was based on misinformation and therefore was thoroughly avoidable and was absolutely unnecessary. We also lacked any historical context at that time, to the point that one of the most commonly asked questions people were asking here in the United States was, why do they hate us? But as we all know, and as producer-turned-contributor Dr. Sebastian Vupper, who has a Ph.D. in history, explains during his weekly segment, The Past Inside the Present, which provides the historical context we need to have a better understanding of current events, everything is the outcome of the events that led up to it, all of which can be interpreted in many ways and can mean different things to different people who have differing perspectives. To suggest that any event completely lacks historical context would seem absurd. And when you look at the history of NATO expansion from the very beginning, even the most hawkish of Cold War anti-Soviet hawks were warning it would lead to a confrontation with nuclear-armed Russia. But after the wall came down, the United States' bipartisan foreign policy didn't care what anybody thought because the USA-USA won the Cold War, and it was now time to chest-thump across Eastern Europe with each new addition to NATO coming with warnings from Russia and from those in the organization, NATO organization itself, that all this maneuvering was in fact very provocative to Russia, who now saw uh, their Cold War enemy conducting military exercises near their border. 
Can you imagine what would happen if Russia ever did the same thing in Mexico or Canada? But that's moral equivalency and assumes that the U.S. and Russia are morally equivalent. And U.S. foreign policy before and after the Cold War has insisted that the United States is superior to all the world's nations now and throughout all of human history. All of this means in a few minutes we will talk about American arrogance and the origins of the war in Ukraine when we speak with Benjamin Schwartz and Christopher Lane, co-authors of this month's June cover story of Harper's Magazine, Why Are We in Ukraine? on the dangers of American hubris. The Los Angeles Times wrote that Benjamin had, quote, reshaped the venerable magazine, that's The Atlantic, the uh, venerable magazine's book section into the shrewdest, best written and most surprising cultural report currently on offer between slick covers. The writers he recruited as regular contributors to his section included past This Is Hell guests Christopher Hitchens and Perry Anderson, among others. Benjamin had previously been a national correspondent for The Atlantic. From 1995 to 2000, he wrote a series of provocative articles arguing that America should play a greatly diminished global role. He also wrote a celebrated group of critical essays on historical and literary subjects. In 1999, he won the National Book Critics Circle's Award for Literary Criticism for the Essays in the Atlantic and in the L.A. Times Book Review, where he was a contributing, contributing writer. He uh, also, from 2020 to 2022, was the chief executive officer of the U.S. Free Speech Union, the sister organization of the U.K. Free Speech Union, where he conceived the organization's mission and strategy, wrote or commissioned all the essays for its substack, and recruited for his advisory council a distinguished group that included, again, past This Is Hell guests like Noam Chomsky and John R. MacArthur. Christopher is the, is the University uh, Distinguished Professor of International Affairs and the Robert M. Gates Chair in National Security at Texas A&M University. He's the author of two books, The Peace of Illusions, American Grand Strategy from 1940 to the Present, and American Empire, A Debate. His current book project, After the Fall, International Politics, U.S. Grand Strategy, and the End of the Pax Americana is under contract with Yale University Press. He's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and uh, he served on the Council of Foreign Relations Study Group on United States-Taiwan Relations. Producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, how was your extended Memorial Day weekend. How are you during, doing, sir? I haven't spoken to you in quite a while. I'm doing quite well. Thank you, sir. So last week, I helped a friend of mine move uh, stuff out of her storage room okay. or container, whatever. Mm -hmm. And we found an old board game. I want you to guess what the game is that we found. I'm going to give you a hint. All right. The hint is in the form of a question. Okay. Are you ready, sir? Yes, sir. Do you know where... Doobie Town is. Oh my God! Did were you? Uh, is it? It's either one of two uh, games. It's either Dealer McDope, or it's called Feds and Heads. It's Dealer McDope. Oh my God! <laughs> You're so good. Oh my God! That's crazy. But there is an actual answer to that question. Oh, where is Doobie Town? <laughs> it's five miles east of Port Clinton, Ohio. Oh, really? And they tell you that in the instructions. <laughs> to really? the game really <laughs> really wow now port clinton is like a little peninsula above sandusky when i first started looking at the map i thought it was gonna be in the middle of lake erie but right it's not 
So I don't know why they chose that. There must be some reason, and I would love to know. I'm starting to think that maybe the <laughs> makers of the board game were actually like, from Port yeah, Clinton. Yeah, exactly. Th that's what I'm guessing right now. <laughs> wow, that's hilarious. Uh, for people who don't know, that's uh, by the uh, artists who did the Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers. What was their name? Oh, I, I just blanked on it. But Last Gasp is the one who's who uh, like uh, promoted or put out the game. The Last Gasp comics and... Yeah, so the, it's whatever. all these like 1960s, 1970s yeah. alternative com, uh, yes. hippie comics, and they've made a board game that's like Monopoly, except it's about dealing drugs. It's actually about, it, you actually have to go to international ports, import the drug, and then you have to bring it here to the United States and then sell the drug in different har different ports in the United States. It is a very, very counterculture <laughs> game. It's very bizarre, too. My uh, Memorial Day weekend began well enough uh, with the mistaken belief that I would get a second long weekend in a row. But instead, I ended up working all weekend because while I know that next month I will be having the final surgery in what has been my year-long medical nightmare, I'm not certain when that surgery will be yet. And it could be at any time, so I need to be prepared and have the show in order so I can take a few days off when I have what I hope is the last procedure and what went from being an emergency surgery and a fight for my life to what promises to be nothing more than a simple outpatient operation. So all I seem to be able to do lately is work, worry, and wait. But more important than my inability to enjoy a weekend. Richard, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what news story do you want to know absolutely nothing about? <laughs> what news story do you want to know absolutely nothing about? You can leave your answer at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it at us uh, at uh, thisishellradio. You can send an email to us with your answer at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. If your answer is our favorite, you'll get your choice of This Is Hell merchandise that is now available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Richard, what is Jeff talking about during this week's moment of truth? Oh my God, I put that paper away. <laughs> oh my God. He, Jeff, he, he, he's not just talking. Yes. He's laying siege to a Scottish stronghold. <laughs> really? <laughs> laying siege to a Scottish stronghold. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on from that. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is how, and I sent Richard a far too long hangover cure for this week. And he, and he has edited it down, pared it down for us. So, Richard, what oh. is this week's hangover cure? Yeah, because we're running late today, I'm yeah. going to just skip over a whole bunch. But this is basically, it comes from The Guardian. Yeah. And they quote some guy. He's a professor, yeah. David Nutt. Yep. I think he goes by the name D. Yes. Professor D. Nuts yes, yes. Research. Yes. Ridiculous. <laughs> Basically, just eat food before you go out to drink. Plenty of liquids. And if you want, in the morning... Take a cold shower. Yeah, I'd like the basically what the uh, this week's hangover cure is: do what you think you're supposed to do. But if you want to, you think you're supposed to take a cold shower. Fine, just don't jump into a cold body of water. Start warm and make it colder as as the as you can accept the coldness. Yeah. So sorry about the <laughs> informality of today's hangover cure, but that's basically it. Guy did a huge study and said it found that uh, you should basically do what you know what to do with a hangover. 
It's pretty simple. Coming up, why is the world at war in Ukraine? Richard has some of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what happened during last week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. Also this week in Rotten History, and we'll tell you who else will be on this week's show. And we... Will Ippen, a producer on our show, he found the travel advisory that U.S. Senator from Florida, Rick Scott, made for his state. Very adorable. And we'll be sharing that following our guests. Whistling by the graveyard since 1996. This is hell. Why was war in Ukraine seemingly unavoidable? absolutely necessary and completely inevitable. How can a war be completely unprovoked, for that matter? And how can a war be both inevitable and unprovoked? If it was inevitable, what led to that inevitability that was not a provocation? I know, it's all very confusing. Here to help us understand what seems impossible to comprehend, and that is a completely unprovoked inevitability Benjamin Schwartz and Christopher Lane are co-authors of this month's June cover story at Harper's Magazine, Why Are We in Ukraine on the Dangers of American Hubris. Benjamin, welcome to This Is Hell. Well, it's, we're, I'm just delighted to be with you, Chris, uh, uh, Chuck. Thank you very much. And welcome to This Is Hell, Christopher. Glad to be here. So, Benjamin, let's just start with you. And I'm going to ask you a really general question that it's just something that bothers me and I can't understand. The Biden administration officials have repeatedly described Russia's attack on Ukraine as being completely unprovoked. It was repeated so much, it was akin to them protesting too much. Yet it went seemingly unquestioned in the United States establishment media and the major corporate and public media outlets. Is it possible, Benjamin, is it possible for a war to begin without any provocation, or at least the perception of a provocation, or at least the manipulation of an event that is turned into a provocation? Is it possible for a war to be completely unprovoked? And is there an example of such a war in human history? Because I just don't understand how can an action be completely unprovoked? That's the first stumbling block I've had in trying to understand the war in Ukraine. Well, that's that's a great question, Chuck. And uh, the I I can't think of a uh, uh, of a historical example of a war that is entirely unprovoked. That is simply a bolt from the blue uh, conducted for um, uh, uh, completely irrational uh, purposes. Uh, uh, my co-author, Chris, Chris Lane, uh, has a uh, uh, a deep knowledge and understanding of of history as well, so he he might be able to rummage through uh, uh, the past and come up with something. But in any case, this war um, is not uh, an example of such. Um, I can't think of a war, in fact, that has been more uh, uh, predicted. Um, in in other words, from the beginning of U.S. and NATO plans to expand eastward, uh, there have been just an enormous number of experts, some on the left, many on the right, uh, who warned that this will lead inevitably to a confrontation with Russia. Uh, at, and that's where we find ourselves now. 
And in fact, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, uh, responded to um, uh, to Vladimir Putin's strenuous objections to the NATO announcement that uh, Ukraine would be joining NATO. Um, uh, Putin objected to this most strenuously um, and uh, and said, this will not stand. And Mikhail Gorbachev himself said, you know, look, Putin isn't saying anything that we Russians haven't been saying for years. Uh, and in fact, uh, our own uh, uh, former uh, uh, ambassador to Russia warned that any moves to, to bring Ukraine into NATO would be crossing the brightest of all red lines for Russia and that Russia would respond. It would see this as a... Uh, uh, a most provocative act challenging its uh, its its essential national security, and uh, again, we find ourselves in this position. And yet, as you have eloquently pointed out, the establishment media and U.S. government spokesmen say Russia had absolutely no reason to 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 launch its attack on Ukraine. This is simply a matter of Putin's irrational uh will to uh, uh to 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 reestablish the the soviet empire and uh, perhaps even uh march on uh on warsaw and um uh and paris uh we don't see it at at, at all in those terms and in our piece in uh in in harper's this month we we lay out the uh what we believe are the 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 reasons for this war and the long history that's led up to it. So, Chris, why is it so important to deny the warnings that were made, to deny that any kind of provocation was made? Why is that so important, not only for the Biden administration, and as you uh, to point out in your writing, this policy can be dated back to at least the mid-90s, uh, so uh, why do you think that this uh, it's so necessary for the media to also deny that history, to deny the provocations, to deny the warnings? Well, one thing that's very clear in uh, what we've seen since uh, February of 2022 and in the run-up to February 2022 is that the American perception management uh, apparatus, and that's what they call it, perception management, um, has been very effective in, in terms of putting forth a consistent story about what is happening in Ukraine and why. Unfortunately, I guess I would say perception management is a fancy term for sophisticated lying. Um, and, you know, Foreign policy is complex, and most people don't pay much attention to foreign policy in the States. Um, so they're not really equipped to penetrate behind this smokescreen of what's really propaganda. Um, but it's clear, it's absolutely clear that there would be trouble down the road if the United States pushed a policy of expanding NATO to the east and specifically inviting Ukraine to join, which is what the United States under the George W. Bush administration wanted to do at the NATO summit in Bucharest in the spring of 2008. 
And um, that was an initiative that was squelched by France and Germany. And it led to this compromise uh, that said that at some point, Ukraine would become a member of NATO without stating a specific day uh, for that to happen. So you had sort of the worst of both worlds, uh, threatening Russia and leaving Ukraine out in a hole. Um, but it, to me, it's just, it's breathtaking that uh, our administration can deny the fact that uh, the Russians have been amply provoked and that we've known this for a long time. And I think we should go back. Um, Vladislav Zubak, who was professor at uh, London School of Economics, has written uh, an extremely good book. It's called Collapse, the Fall of Soviet Union. It was published by Yale University Press two years ago. But he points out, even in 1990-91, when the Soviet Union was dissolving, Chris, you still there? That. Chris? Oh, it seems like we've lost Chris. Ben, are you still there? Yes, I am. All right. So let's just continue on with you and we'll try to reconnect with Chris. Um, so you write that as former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates acknowledge approvingly the United States is fighting a proxy war with Russia. Thanks to Washington's efforts to arm and train the Ukrainian military and to integrate it into NATO systems, we are now witnessing the most intense and sustained military entanglement in the near 80-year history of global competition between the United States and Russia. So, Ben, is it any more likely that this cold war, if you will, which seems to be getting hotter and hotter every day, compared to the past cold war, will become a direct confrontation instead of remaining a, a proxy war. Do you think there is any sense of complacency instead of urgency because the past cold war never became a hot war between the U.S. and the Soviets. Are we dismissing the uh, urgency of this situation because the Cold War did not end up in a hot war? That's a that's a great question, Chuck. And uh, I have to say that um, you know before uh, before I was a journalist, I was uh, a national security analyst uh, at uh, at the Rand Corporation, and this was at the uh, the 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 very end of the Cold War, um, but uh, you know it was clear then that uh, uh, you know this this is just an intrinsically horribly dangerous situation. Um, you do have two nuclear superpowers um, that then and most important today, people really have to understand this. You know we have. Uh, 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 so, uh, nuclear and sub submarines right now uh, patrolling off the coast of Russia. Russia has nuclear and submarines right now patrolling off the coast of the United States. Uh, this is, uh, we have, you know, uh, uh, ICBMs that are trained on Russia. Russia has ICBMs that are trained on the United States. It's um, 
it's nobody wants, obviously, nobody wants a nuclear war, but uh, the both powers are poised um, to launch a nuclear war. Uh, and during the Cold War, when you know, arguably, and I wouldn't subscribe to this view, but one it 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 one could argue that look, you know, there are uh, uh, the Soviet Union poses real challenges to essential uh, national security interests of the United States. Again, I don't I, I don't subscribe to that view, nor uh, nor would Chris. But we'll just we'll grant that for a moment. So during the Cold War, there was a real you, you could say there was a real uh, um, there was a real cause for this rivalry. Even then, or even say especially then, almost everyone except the most lunatic fringe of the very very far right argued for a policy of restraint when it came to sort of direct confrontation with, with Moscow. Um, the idea that we would be engaged in this kind of proxy war, that we would be um, helping an adversary um, in, directly target Russian forces, that we would pr be providing real-time battlefield intelligence information to take out Russian troops and Russian generals, and that we would almost certainly be conducting special operations um, or helping to conduct special operations um, against Russian forces. This idea would have been ruled out of court. People would have said this is far too dangerous, even, even though the, we, we have a legitimate beef with Moscow. This is back then. Um, because this could provoke a Cold War, I mean, rather a nuclear war. Nobody seems to be worried about that now. There is this enormous complacency. And we have to understand that in a lot of ways, the nuclear trigger finger of, uh, of Moscow is itchier than it was during the Cold War. And it's itchier for reasons that have to do with deliberate American policy, that American policy since the end of the Cold War, at least, has been to achieve uh, nuclear supremacy um, and to be able to theoretically launch a, uh, a, a nuclear strike against Moscow in a way that Moscow can't retaliate. That gives Moscow all sorts of incentive if, in, in the case of a dire crisis to launch its nuclear weapons first. This just creates an, an extremely unstable situation. And that's the situation we're in now. Um, I, I can't, you know, uh, you know uh, Chuck, you and I are sort of, and Chris, we're all of a certain age. And we can, you know, we remember the Cold War. Um, and we remember that, you know, people, all sorts of people who disagreed with each other on all sorts of political matters were united in the conviction that we really had to conduct a re very restrained and careful policy, we being the United States, when it came to any kind of direct confrontation 
with with Russia. That's obviously just been thrown out the window, but the underlying nuclear reality remains. Chris, now that we have you back, you and Ben also write that Russia's President Vladimir Putin, an aging and bloodthirsty authoritarian, launched an unprovoked attack on a fragile democracy. That's what most American policymakers, politicians, and pundits, that's one of the reasons that they give for this war. To the extent that we can ascribe coherent motives for this action, they lie in Putin's paranoid psychology, his misguided attempt to raise his domestic political standing, and his refusal to accept that Russia lost the Cold War. Putin is frequently described as mercurial, deluded, and irrational, someone who cannot be bargained with on the basis of national or political self-interest. This sounds very much like the demonizing that we've seen done in the past, whether it's uh, Manuel Noriega or Gaddafi or Saddam Hussein or whoever it happens to be at the time, Assad, if you will. What happens, Chris, to analysis when it depends upon a foundation of believing the subject is deluded irrational, or worse, evil, psychotic, or the next Hitler? What happens to our understanding of a subject, Chris, when it depends upon those kinds of labels? Well, first thing is that it personalizes the war and its causes, attributing everything to a leader in a country with uh, whom we are in a state of actual or potential hostilities. Um, and I think one of the things that's really disturbing to me about the decision-making process in Washington is that the United States seems to have completely forgotten that Russia is a state, this state with a long history, a political culture, a sense of its own place in the world. And it's not just Vladimir Putin. I, I mean, I would really not be surprised if I took a trip to Washington and walked into any office associated foreign policy establishment found that Russia has been, the name Russia has been uh, excised from maps and replaced with Putania. But that's that's not the case. It's not all Vladimir Putin. And one of the things that um, you have to look at the circumstantial evidence, because there's no clear smoking gun at this point, may never be, um, and certainly won't be until the U.S. archives are open. But if you look at a lot of uh, what was said on and off the record at the beginning of the war, it's pretty clear that the U.S. goal, hope, was to promote regime change in Moscow with the idea that if you could get rid of Vladimir Putin, that somehow you would end up with a more docile regime in Moscow, more open to uh, to being accommodating to U.S. geopolitical demands. And that's just not likely to be the case. Any Russian leader who followed Vladimir Putin would still see uh, a vital Russian interest in holding on to Crimea, perhaps just as vital an interest in holding on to parts of the Donbass. It's not just one person. Just like the United States has a foreign policy establishment, Russia also has a foreign policy establishment. And these establishments, for better or worse, represent a sort of a historical continuity, the way that a state sees itself, sees its role in the world. And I just think it's a terrible mistake not to understand 
sort of the, the dynamics, the underlying dynamics of Russian policy and attribute this all to um, one crazy dictator. Um, that's just not what's happening here. Chris, let me follow up on that. Uh, you uh, also write with Ben that as the Soviets quit Eastern and Central Europe at the end of the Cold War, they imagined that NATO might be dissolved alongside the Warsaw Pact. Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev uh, insisted that Russia would never agree to assign NATO a leading role in building a new Europe. So the Warsaw Pact ended on July 1st, 1991. At the time, Europe nor Russia wanted NATO if there was no Warsaw Pact because there would no longer be a need for what was meant to be the Warsaw Pact's counterpart, NATO. However, NATO remained and expanded. What, Chris, does that tell you about NATO's mission, which is, according to their own website, to ensure the collective defense of its members based on a 360-degree approach and outlines three core tasks, deterrence, defense, crisis prevention, and management, as well as cooperative security. So, Chris, is NATO a deterrence, a defense of member nations, preventing crisis and management of any crisis that might come up, as well as ensuring cooperative security for member states? As it stands today, is NATO fulfilling its admitted and self-proclaimed mission? Well, Having had the opportunity to visit NATO headquarters in Brussels and be a recipient of the briefing that they give to visitors, um, again, there's a lot of perception management here. Um, in NATO, and as Ben pointed out, both old enough to remember the Cold War very vividly, NATO was created as a Cold War alliance to contain the Soviet Union. Uh, let me stated even more boldly, it was, by design, an anti-Soviet alliance, anti-Soviet alliance. And the idea that you could take this anti-Soviet alliance and make it an instrument of some post-Cold War security order in Europe that included Russia um, was just you know, a sort of ludicrous thought. Um, but that sort of tells you um, that NATO was not just about the Cold War and the Soviet Union. You know, in my book, The Peace of Illusions, I did a lot of archival research, and it's very clear that NATO was intended to be and remains an instrument of American hegemony in Europe and globally. Um, and the question is, to me, you know, first of all, is that a policy that we still want to follow, especially when it brings us into the possibility of conflict with a nuclear armed power with Russia. Um, now, I understand, I do understand that states like Poland and the Baltic states have long histories with Russia. I understand that they fear for their security. Whether those fears are overblown or not is a question we could discuss. But, you know, the, the fact that they have a historical record with Russia and vice versa doesn't mean that we should be the ones risking war to protect them. And I think, you know, we have all these terms that American strategists like to use, like extended deterrence. Um, and it sort of takes the sting out of what that really means. I mean, is the United States willing to risk nuclear war to defend not our own homeland? I make that very clear. There were, nobody doubts that the United States if the homeland was attacked, would retaliate with nuclear weapons. But are we willing to do the same thing for a third party? 
like Lithuania or Poland or Estonia or Latvia. Uh, and I think those are questions that, you know, don't get discussed very often in American foreign policy debate because the foreign policy establishment does not want them discussed. Um, I agree with Ben. Uh, there is a lot of complacency in official circles and beyond the official circles, the, the broader foreign policy establishment, the belief that this nuclear taboo that has existed since 1945 will last. Um, and I, I would say that we can all hope that's true, but when a power that has nuclear weapons finds itself in a situation of geopolitical extremists, you cannot discount the possibility that it would use nuclear weapons if its back is to the wall. And this is actually something that maybe we should talk about more, how the Biden administration is trying to thread a needle. They want Ukraine to win, but they don't want Ukraine to win too much because they understand that if Ukraine won too much, that the risks of Russia using tactical nuclear weapons or even other nuclear weapons begins to rise precipitously. For example, you know, the Crimea is a region that the entire Russian foreign policy establishment feels is part of Russia. And if Ukrainians get to a point where they have enough military success on the battlefield to challenge Russian control of Crimea, I think that you would find that there's a, a serious possibility that the Russians would use uh, tactical nuclear weapons to restore the battlefield situation and hold on to Crimea. So yeah, I, I just think that the Biden administration has a vested interest in playing down the risks of nuclear escalation for obvious reasons. If the American public understood what these risks are, I think there would be a lot more opposition to our policy. Um, but the fact is, these risks exist, and we need to be cognizant of them. We need to be cognizant of the fact that we picked deliberately to fight a proxy war against a nuclear-armed great power. And that is inherently risky policy. Ben, Chris just touched on this uh, as far as why there isn't a more vigorous anti-war movement, him saying that uh, President Biden hasn't pointed out to the public exactly what kind of nuclear danger that we are facing here. We've been talking about the kind of complacency that is happening when it comes to addressing this war in Ukraine how there needs to be an urgency, and especially an urgency considering that Russia has a nuclear arsenal just like the United States has. So, Ben, in your opinion, why isn't there a more vigorous anti-war movement right now? How much is the anti-war movement silenced by the concern that they have of possibly looking like they support Vladimir Putin by being against this war? Well, can I jump back in on this? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, Go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. Please, please, Chris. I'll let Ben answer because, I, you know, he's got a very important perspective on this. But historically, going back to the Cold War and the origins of the Atlantic Alliance, NATO, the United States has always recognized that for various reasons, which I'm not going to go into right at the moment, but feel free to follow up. 
Uh, the United States and NATO could never defeat the Soviet Union in a conventional war in Europe, should, should such a war have happened um, after World War II. So the NATO policy really relied on deterrence based on the U.S. threat to use nuclear weapons in response to a Soviet conventional attack on Europe. But that's certainly not the popular understanding of our nuclear, our nuclear strategy. Um, during the intermediate range nuclear forces crisis, uh, in the early eighties, the Washington Post did a survey and it asked Americans under what circumstances did they believe the U.S. would actually use nuclear weapons? And something like 80% of the respondents said that the U.S. would only use nuclear weapons in response to a direct attack on the American homeland. And that is just not the case. Um, the American strategy, the NATO strategy, was, if necessary, to use nuclear weapons in response to a Soviet conventional attack on Western Europe specifically, I suppose, West Germany, since they were in the front line. Um, Henry Kissinger, uh, two years or so after he left office, spoke at an International Institute for Strategic Studies meeting in uh, Brussels. And these meetings were all supposed to be by Chatham House rules. You're not supposed to be quoted. Um, you're not supposed to have anything attributed to your name. Um, but the next day after Kissinger spoke, there was a story in the New York Times quoting him. And I believe I can quote this almost verbatim. Kissinger said, don't you Europeans keep asking us to make commitments we cannot possibly mean, and that if we did mean, we would never want to execute? You know, raising a serious question about what the implications are in terms of nuclear war with respect to the U.S. commitment to NATO. But, you know, every time something like the Washington Post poll, which I refer to Kissinger's remark. These things get squelched and buried again, and they don't get discussed because the last thing the foreign policy establishment wants is for the American people to understand the kinds of risks that are built in to our global strategy, whether it's in Europe, Ukraine, or East Asia. So, Ben, uh, just again to follow up on this, so why, um, as Chris was just explaining, the reason reasoning behind why there is no anti-war movement. One of the other things that you write about with Chris, Ben, is that from the very beginning, the policy of NATO expansion was dangerously open-ended. Not only did the United States cavalierly enlarge its nuclear and security commitments while creating ever-expanding frontiers of insecurity, but it did so knowing that Russia, a great power with a nuclear arsenal of its own and an understandable resistance to being absorbed into a global order on America's terms, lay at that periphery. Thus did the United States recklessly embark on a policy that would, as the venerable American foreign policy expert, diplomat, and historian George F. Kennan had warned in 1997, again, somebody who was very anti-Soviet Union, he warned in 1997, that this kind of policy would restore the atmosphere of the Cold War to East-West relations if they did expand uh, NATO eastward. So, Ben, why did the U.S. act so cavalierly? Why did they seem to not care about the consequences of their actions? Because we cannot claim that this is hindsight, as many at uh, the time were warning, or might, be, might be warning, nor can we say this was a fringe idea, as, you know, Kennan 
was somebody who was pointing this out. Even Kennan was warning that it, if we expanded NATO, we could get in the mess we are currently in, potentially on the brink of nuclear war with Russia. So Ben, in your opinion, why did the U.S., starting with the Clinton administration, act so cavalierly without any care about their consequences of their actions with its expansion of NATO? Why did the U.S. not heed warnings? Well, that's a fantastic question, Chuck. And again, you know, as you point out, this was <laughs> far from being kind of a a, uh, a a a bolt from the blue and completely incomprehensible and irrational act um, on on Russia's part launching this war. Few things are more predictable. <laughs> if you go back, just you know, a a casual survey of the kind of straightforward uh, uh, discussion about Russia's attitude towards NATO expansion generally and toward the prospect of Ukraine being incorporated into the NATO alliance just makes absolutely clear that the entire Russian political class, from the most liberal westernizers to the most sort of atavistic nationalists were united in seeing NATO expansion as a dire threat and the prospect of Ukraine joining NATO as an absolutely unacceptable outcome um, and that Russia would resist that prospect strenuously and would probably fight for it. Nothing. This was an absolutely understood until the day before yesterday. Again, as you know, as we point out in the piece, and as many critics have pointed out, you know, current CIA director, former uh, uh, ambassador to Russia, uh, William Burns, said this in a in a uh, in a then classified memo to uh, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice that Russia will not tolerate. Uh, the uh, the 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 incorporation of Ukraine into NATO. The reason, so you you ask then, why is it that there is this sort of popular complacency? Well, you know, it's funny, Chuck, because you know, obviously, you know, we're uh, I I hate to keep bringing up our our our, our respective ages. But we remember the Cold War and we remember the, you know, what was called the, you know, the stifling Cold War consensus that, you know, the idea that everyone was united in the cause of anti-communism and there is no um, deep questioning of American policy. Well, to an extent, that's true. But I find this current consensus far more stifling and far more monolithic um, than at any point. Um, in the Cold War, there are um, that you kind of have a, um, uh, you know, a, I would say kind of a terrible coincidence where um, there are people who are now labeled neocons, neoconservatives, who, you know, have always wanted a, you know, the, the United States to, um, you know, essentially, be the um, the 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 dictator of the world, <laughs> to put it too baldly. Um, but uh, you know that the United States should be the preeminent 
military and political power in the world. And they see properly and understandably NATO as the instrument of American um, uh, hegemony, of American dominance uh, in, in Europe. So it's kind of understandable why those people would want to be pursuing this policy. It's understandable if regrettable. Um, but the problem is that you used to have a, a left that was um, opposed to, to these notions. And for a weird, almost, inexpl almost inexplicable chain of events, um, the uh, NATO has been able to portray itself as the international defender of human rights. Um, and that's why, for instance, uh, that explains the, you know, the, 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 the wars that NATO's, uh, that NATO conducted against this, uh, uh, the sovereign states of Libya and Yugoslavia. Uh, and a lot of the left has bought this. You also, and I, you know, this is getting into territory that's really more domestic politics than international relations, but I think, you know, again, uh, the, the, whatever Donald Trump's, um, uh, uh, real motivations were and whatever his views, if they can even be discerned and, uh, explicated about international relations generally and relations toward Russia specifically, whatever those, whatever the reality of that is, there's a perception that, that Donald Trump um, was cozy to Putin and, and he was cozy to Putin because they're both authoritarian personalities. And therefore, anyone who, um, uh, wants to kind of understand and explain Moscow's policies in rational terms is somehow tarred with the brush of Donald Trump and of a authoritarian anti-democratic um, uh, uh, tendency in the United States, um, you know, that silences, you know, critics. It would be as if, um, you know, during the Vietnam War, if, uh, if the Viet Cong and Ho Chi Minh uh, were both regarded as instruments of the Ku Klux Klan, you know, or of anti, anti-civil rights um, efforts in the United States. So, you know, it, you don't have a left in, Amer in, in, in the United States that can oppose American foreign, foreign adventurism because it sees that it, by doing that, it's in, in, it's in somehow jumping in the bed of the American right. I think that has something to do with the explanation. But the outcome is horrible. Because you, I, I, again, I can't think of a time in uh, modern American political history when there's been a such a dangerous set of policies, such a provocative set of policies that the United States has pursued, and b that that those policies have been entirely um, unopposed, unquestioned by anyone in the political elite and anyone. Um, uh, really in the public at large. Uh, again, during the Cold War, you, uh, you had some heroic senators and congressmen 
who saw the world somewhat differently, people like J. William Fulbright um, uh, and um, uh, 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 the, uh, say, Frank Church, um, who questioned the, the not just uh, this or that policy, but the underlying motivations of American policy. You don't have that anymore. You don't have figures of national political importance who are um, who are, are dissenting from this consensus. So um, this is a, um, uh, as, as, as Chris pointed out, um, uh, this administration, um, NATO generally, um, Ukraine uh, specifically, some of the new states that have been incorporated into NATO, um, Poland, the Baltic states, they've all done a great job of, of perception management. Uh, and um, and again, I think uh, that the the influence of uh, of Donald Trump uh, and the and the legacy of Donald Trump really can't be um, uh, can't be exaggerated. That's really interesting. Uh, a, a lack of uh, left being a kind of national security threat. That's really interesting. What were you going to say, Chris? I had a question for you, but go ahead and feel free to follow uh, up. You know, I'm obviously. Agree with basically everything's been said, but I think we can add a little more to this. The simple answer to your question is hubris. And the United States is not the only very powerful state in history that has succumbed to hubris. Um, you can go back to Thucydides' uh, history of the Peloponnesian War uh, to find a great example of a power that thought it had both in ideology and the material capabilities to expand its sphere of influence and uh, actually ended up losing the war because of that. The Athenians lost the war. Um, you know, as international relations scholars, we, we do have theories to try to explain these things. And one of the ones that uh, we should probably introduce in discussion is called offensive realism. It's actually very simple. It says, that the more power states have, the more expansion their more expansive their ambitions will be. Um, my mentor Ken Waltz, uh, who is maybe the most eminent international relations scholar of the second half of the 20th century, always used to say in his folksy way, you know, the thing about having lots of capabilities is if you've got them, you're gonna want to use them. And at the end of the Cold War, the U.S. had enormous capabilities compared to every other state in the world. And as Ben pointed out, neoconservatives and others in foreign policy establishment reveled in this unipolar world where the United States had no peer rival. And it goes beyond that. It's not just material power. The United States, as scholars like uh, Walter McDougall and William Apple Williams point out, has an expansionist proselytizing ideology, uh, which explains why often in McDougall's terms, the U.S. acts like a crusader state. Um, and just two other quick points. If under President Bush 41, um, he gave a famous speech in 1991 in Kiev, came to be known historically as the chicken Kiev speech, but he made a very important point. Um, warning the Ukrainians against being seduced by the siren song of nationalism if the Soviet Union broke out, because he understood 
the risks of conflict between Russia and Ukraine would be very real if the Soviet Union dissolved. And he issued this warning to sort of caution the Ukrainian political elites that if they became independent, there would be a very dangerous, potentially unstable situation between them and Russia. It seems we, we sort of forgot about that. Um, but it was a very wise warning. And one other thing, i just go back and point out, we should go back and look at the, the run-up to the war, not just February of last year, but um, the months preceding it. We all know now that the U.S. had extremely good intelligence. We knew what the Russians were planning to do. We basically knew when they were planning to do it. So if the United States wanted to avoid war, we knew what the what the Russian what the Russian what the Russians were seeking. And the Russians made this clear in, in a uh, a note, a diplomatic note that they sent to Washington. They made clear their objections to NATO expansion and why this was a problem for them. And the United States knew this. We also knew that they were planning the Russians. Pardon me, that the Russians were planning to attack. So. At that point, the United States, to avoid war, could have said to Moscow, you know, we read your diplomatic note, you're right, we should try to avoid war, let's sit down and talk about this and see if we can come to some kind of solution that avoids conflict. The only thing we heard from the administration and from the NATO uh, organization itself was, there has to be an open door to NATO membership. We are not going to foreclose the possibility of Ukraine becoming a member of NATO, even though this was the clear issue that was driving Russian policy and bringing Russia and Ukraine to the brink of war. And so I think the question we should ask is why was the U.S. so rigidly committed to a policy of not even being willing to engage the Russians on an issue that clearly we understood was of great interest and importance to them. And, you know, there's been a lot of stories, uh, not all of them attributed uh, on the record, but it's pretty clear that one of the reasons why the U.S. Um, didn't try to avoid this conflict is because we thought it would be a conflict where um, the possibility of bringing about regime change in Russia would present itself. and. You know, again, circumstantial evidence often is the only evidence that we have, but the circumstantial evidence is pretty compelling. We knew what the Russians wanted. We knew what they objected to. We knew a war was coming if the Russian concerns were not addressed. We didn't address them. Well, you mentioned hubris, though, Chris. Uh, who's, who embraces this hubris? After all, you were uh, both you and Ben write about uh, comparison to the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, and you quote then Secretary of Defense Robert S. McNamara, who acknowledged uh, to the Advisory Committee on the very first day of the missile crisis, quote, "I'll be quite frank. I don't think there is a military problem here. This is a domestic, political problem." 
So how big of a contribution is today's domestic politics? How much of a desire is there amongst the voting public, Chris, when it comes to confronting Russia like this? Is this uh, is this hubris not driven necessarily as much by military industrial complex or the Biden administration or the Trump administration or the Obama administration? How much is this hubris driven by the desire of Americans to embrace arrogance? Well, I've been rambling on. I think maybe Ben wants to jump in here, but I can give you a quick answer. Um, this is foreign policy in America is made by the foreign policy establishment. It is not a popular democratic process. Um, most of the time, unless there's a war going on directly involving the U.S., Americans tend not to pay too much attention to foreign policy. Um, but Americans do have this interest, this, this vision um, that the foreign policy establishment has done much to create. What was it that uh, Madeleine Albright said? That the U.S. stands taller and sees further than any other state in the history of the world, um, that we are the indispensable nation. So, you know, there, there are all of these myths about American exceptionalism, which on the surface, there's some buy-in from the public. I don't always remember what uh, Secretary of State King Atchison, former Secretary of State, said that if you but if you leave if you leave foreign policy up to the public, they'll get it wrong every single time. So there's this condescension from the foreign policy establishment at the same time that there's attempts to sort of shape what's the most polite way that I can put it, public opinion. Um, we also see, I think, in polls now, that support for, for this policy is beginning to weaken. Uh, more weakening more so far among Republicans and Democrats, but still beginning to weaken. But it's not because the public understands the risks of nuclear escalation, potential for this would go very wrong. Um, it's mostly because people are tired of, as uh, I guess Speaker McCarthy said, having Congress and the president sign blank checks uh, to give aid and weapons to Ukraine. Uh, it would be it would be better for all of us if there were a deeper debate and more public understanding of what's really driving American policy and why that's leading us down a path that could turn out to be very dangerous. So, Ben, your uh, take on that hubris and it, uh, you know, originating either within the American citizenry itself or uh, how much does this uh, hubris, this arrogance how much is it accurate, accurately reflected by U.S. foreign policy? I, I, I would really agree with Chris um, in, in that I really think that the, the, the public at large doesn't really pay attention to foreign policy and for understandable and really good reasons. Um, uh, unless and until there is a... Uh, uh, either an enormous danger that looms or um, the costs in terms of blood and treasure become hugely great. Now, the costs of this war are absolutely staggering, but they haven't really gotten very much attention. And people 
don't really understand the relationship between the cost of this war and domestic policy generally and the way their lives are going to be uh, are, are, are led now and in the future. Um, so I would say that the the support for the war is wide but extremely thin. Um, and but the United the foreign policy establishment um, has been uh, uh, very um, astute, uh, really since the 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 Reagan administration. Um, in that the interventions that it conducts are relatively low in casualties. Um, and uh, or are extremely low in casualties, or the casualties are non-existent. So, in the case of this war, there are no uh, direct American casualties, um, and the risks that the United States is running are are again not. No one is 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 warning about those. No one is. Uh, the, there aren't any uh, figures that are kind of connecting the dots. So. This war is kind of conducted in a way that the public at large is is kind of left in the dark. Uh, and uh, unless and until there is the prospect of a direct confrontation, a, a direct prospect of a direct confrontation with Russia, say, um, then uh, I don't think the public is really going to pay much attention to it. Yeah, I think we should just also point out uh, how sophisticated the perception management machine in Washington is in terms of framing issues. Uh, this is now portrayed as a war between democracy and dictatorships. Well, if you go down to the street corner or go to Starbucks and just randomly ask people, you believe in democracy or dictatorship, but we all know that most Americans will say they believe in democracy. Ukraine now is routinely portrayed as a democracy, even by the mainstream quality, quote unquote, media in the United States. When it's all they have to do, these reporters, is go to Freedom House, which ranks states on the scale of democratic to less democratic. Ukraine is not a democracy, but we have now the idea, and President Zelensky knows how to exploit this, um, saying, telling the United States that Ukraine is defending the future of democracy and liberty, another catchword, freedom in America. And I guess the only thing I would say, you know, since President Trump was elected in 2016, um, maybe even a little before, we've had an ongoing debate about the uh, future of democracy in America. But if the future of American democracy hinges on Ukraine, we're in a lot more trouble than I thought. I've got one last question for each of you. We've been speaking with Benjamin Schwartz and Christopher Lane, co-authors of this month's June cover story at Harper's Magazine, Why Are We in Ukraine? On the Dangers of American Hubris. So, gentlemen, uh, the final question I have for each and every one of our guests, and I have a separate one for each of you is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, or you may hate to answer, or our audience may hate your response. So let's start with you, Ben. How important is the end of NATO for sustainable peace and security in Europe? 
I think as long as uh, Russia is a is a state, uh, then the end of NATO is very important because Russia is a state that is in Europe, but in some ways not exactly of Europe. Um, uh, it's on Europe's periphery, but it's always, it's historically always played an essential and often defensive role um, in, um, in, in European politics. Russia is never going to regard NATO, um, an alliance led by a superpower across the Atlantic, um, as anything but a threat to it. So as long as there is a Russian state, and whether that state is led by Putin or by anyone else, uh, uh, there's going to be a risk of, and a, a big risk of confrontation and rivalry between the United States and Russia over, over that alliance. So our question from hell for you, Chris, is based upon their actions, not their words. What are the values U.S. foreign policy is defending? If it is selective in how it supports and opposes others' actions, as you point out, happened in the Civil War in Yugoslavia, what are U.S. foreign policy values if they support and oppose different actions depending on the moment, on the time and the place, and seemingly inconsistently, inconsistently based upon its actions, not its words? What are the values of U.S. foreign policy, in your opinion, Chris? Well, you're asking a great question, Chuck. And uh, when I teach American foreign policy, and I teach it at least once every every academic year, I always like to ask my students if, if as American policymakers say ad nauseum, America's values are universal. My question is, is why do we have to fight so many wars to get others to accept those values? You know, American policy is framed in one, in one way. We're trying to promote democracy. We're trying to promote free markets. We're trying to promote human rights. But really what American policy is about is promoting American power and this is ensuring that America remains the hegemonic dominant power in the international system and minimizing any source of threat to America's geopolitical dominance. So this isn't about, about values, the, the relationship between the U.S. and Russia, the relationship between U.S. and China. It's a competition for power. And as uh, I pointed out in, in the Peace of Illusions, um, it was clear, even while World War II was still being fought, that the goal of American policymakers for the post-World War II international system was a world in which America would be dominant and have no rivals. Now, the Soviet Union got in the way of that um, for 40 years, but when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, America was able to realize this ambition to be the sole great power in the international system. So, you know, we use values both to speak to foreign audiences and to speak to the American public as explanations for why we do what we do in the international system. But that's just so much smoke and mirrors because what really is driving American policy is this desire to be the unchallenged dominant power in the international system. 
And sooner or later, that's going to get us into real trouble. Ben and Chris, I really appreciate you being on the show with us today. I had approximately 75 questions for you, and we could have this conversation for, we've been talking for an hour, and we could have this conversation for another two hours. There is so much in this writing, and our listeners should definitely check out your article at Harper's. Again, the title is Why Are We in Ukraine on the Dangers of American Hubris? This is a really important article, and I certainly hope that our listeners check it out. Thank you both so much for being on our show. We would be honored to have both of you back on the show in the future. Again, thank you so much. It's a great way to start the week following our Memorial Day weekend. I truly appreciate it. Well, thank you, Chuck. It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for, for inviting us. Yes, def definitely. That's really an honor. Thank you, gentlemen. I really appreciate it. And uh, enjoy your summer. You too. Thanks. Okay. This is not the media. This is hell. I thought that was hilarious that he said, uh, Chris said that if these are universal values, then why are we fighting so hard over them? Why is if they're universal? Why aren't we all in agreement on them? I thought these values were universal. So yeah, this is not the media. This is hell. And you know, this is not the establishment media because there's no way they would allow someone to be on air for nearly an hour, more than an hour, and two people, not just one person, explaining how the US, the West, and NATO purposely, intentionally, has provoked Russia into a military confrontation over the present and future of Europe. A confrontation the West was warned against for over a quarter of a century and then completely denied they were engaged in the provocation when it blew up in their face exactly as they were told it would 25 years ago which has led now to a far greater chance for apocalyptic nuclear war. If that talk we just had with Ben and Chris is a reminder that you cannot and will not hear discussions like those you hear on This Is Hell anywhere else, please show your appreciation for This Is Hell, providing now nearly 27 years of content that you could not and cannot get anywhere else, giving airtime to opinions and perspectives you will not find anywhere else, and providing that content to you absolutely free, including right now nearly 10 years of free shows at our website, thisishell.com. Show your appreciation for all that by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 Chicago time. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support on our most recent Thursday, May 25th, Patreon podcast, I have been haunted by two recent questions from hell. The first was asked during our newest feature on Patreon. That's where subscribers can now ask me their question from hell. And then producer Will Ippen selects a question from hell submitted by Patreon patrons every week. A question I have not heard or read prior to Will asking it. I never read what you have posted under the post at patreon.com uh, slash this is hell, where it says uh, this week's question from hell for Chuck. I've never read what your responses are, and I never will, because I want to be surprised just like you are by the question from hell. Will recently chose a question posed by Patreon subscriber Neil C. Neil's question from hell for me 
which I answered on Patreon a few weeks ago, was, what are your guilty pleasures? Then, last week, the question from hell for listeners was, why don't people like you? And I couldn't stop considering and reconsidering both, eventually realizing that my guilty pleasure makes me a very unlikable person. To me. After all, you are supposed to feel guilt from guilty pleasures. It's right there in the name. And, at least for me, the reason I'm not very fond of myself is because of those very, very guilty pleasures of which I have committed and am admitted to, and I committed to those stupid guilty pleasures. I want to get rid of them. I'm doing everything I can to excise them from my spirit. But I admitted to all of those guilty pleasures on a recent Patreon podcast. Also on Patreon, the Wayback Machine has been stuck on 20 years for a few weeks. And this time, we went back nearly 20 years to find a classic interview in our archives that is unavailable anywhere else online and we had not shared yet on Patreon. And to be honest, I don't think it's been aired since we originally aired that interview live again way back in 2003. This time the interview was with author Andrew Boyd, who was a lecturer at New York University and co-chair of Billionaires for Bush or Gore when he was on the show 20 years ago. He was on to discuss this is then just posted a story at The Nation called The Web Rewires the Movement. Andrew gave us an update of the current state of the global justice movement or whatever they were calling it way back in 2003. And it's a fascinating talk on where we were that leads to questions of where we are now and how we got here. Andrew has a new book out recently released called I Want a Better Catastrophe, Navigating the Climate Crisis and Grief with Grief, Hope and Gallows Humor. Musician Brian Eno says of Andrew's new book, Stunning, marks the emergence of a new and generally stunning kind of realism. So I guess the book is stunning. It's got all sorts of fold-out charts and graphs, and to be honest, it's a pretty cool package. But you can only learn what my guilty pleasures are and why not to like me, as well as a 20-year-old talk on whatever the global justice movement was back in 2003. You can only hear all that by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do, you get immediate access to more than five years of Patreon podcasts, as well as a special code word just for Patreon patrons, which gives them a $5 discount on all of our merchandise, all of our stuff, all of our swag that you can find at thisishell.com when you click on support. Richard, please remind us what is this week's question from hell, and please tell us how our listeners are responding so far on, what is it, Discord and Patreon, I believe? That is correct. This week's question from hell is, <clears throat> what news story do you want to know absolutely nothing about? <laughs> I like this question way better than why don't people like me? <laughs> well, uh, <clears throat> go to Discord first. Kim G answers, I need to know zilch more about that Silicon Valley rich dude and his son's blood. <laughs> unless his face cracks open and a chirogenic head pops out of his neck. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> nice. Kim G always gives great responses to the question from hell. So next we'll go to Patreon. David S. answers, including the news story you posted. 
that's referenced in the post, any news story involving a bromance, especially the bridgening one between Elon Musk and Ron DeSantis. Wow, people are really getting down on Elon Musk today. Apparently, nobody wants to know anything about Elon Musk anymore. Of course. Of course. Thank you. What news story do you want to know absolutely nothing about? Yeah, the image that we sh- I shared with this is a, a screen grab of an article uh, that is, or it's a photo of an article about a woman who lost her hat in a tree. It's a news article. <laughs> Very <Yes>. important <laughs> news story there. It's straight up, <clears throat> it's proto onion. It is, it is. You'd think it's an onion story, but it's not. A woman actually lost her hat in a tree, and it's a very important story. Lakeowski's got a cough going on. I know, I hear that. Nick A answers, I'm nosy as hell. Tell me all. (laughs) Okay. See you next Tuesday. Answers all of them, unless it's about a a new, highly devastating plague, then I would like hourly updates. All right. Sounds right. Plague. Always a good news story to follow. Sarah Ann S. uh, answers with a link to a CNN story about a Kentucky man who shot his roommate over Hot Pockets. (laughs) I think that's a law. I think you, you can do that. You're allowed to shoot people in Kentucky over Hot Pockets. What news story do you want to know absolutely nothing about? Old Grouch answers the announcement that some guy named Biden is running for president. <laughs> Who in hell is that? Oh, wait. This is hell. <laughs> this is hell. He, he must be a trustee for the man. Yeah. <laughs> right, Jeff Dorchin answers Henry Kissinger continuing to remain alive. <laughs> yes, I don't want to hear any of that story either. Mark C. answers, any news about a primary battle between an anti-vax conspiracy theorist, an emotionally abusive huckster who accured a fortune spouting pseudo-religious nonsense, and dot dot dot, wait, who's that other guy running again? (laughs) Yikes. And lastly on Patreon, we have Essential answering... Stocks surge as EPA abolishes quarantine restrictions <laughs> for Bobert Bola 23. Yikes. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. You can post it at our uh, Discord page. You can post it at our Patreon page. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorchin and his weekly moment of truth. Again, Richard, what is Jeff doing during this week's moment of truth? Jeff is laying siege to a Scottish stronghold. We will share more is of he your... in Edinburgh? <laughs> I do not know. We will... Uh, Glasgow. I'm going to go Glasgow. Uh, we will share more of your answers to this week's question from hell later this week, obviously, and we'll announce this week's winner. The winner gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise absolutely free, and you can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Richard, who is our next guest here on This Is Hell? Lindsay Koshgarian, co-author of the National Prioritas Project at the Institute for Policy Studies Report. The Warfare State, How Funding for Militarism Compromises Our Welfare. Lindsay's co-authors include Aliyah 
Luzer, Luz, Luz, <laughs> wow, you did so great with Kashgarian. I was like, I couldn't get Kashgarian for the life of me, but Lusuegro. Lusuegro. And that's the one that you got stuck on. Ashik Sadiq. Ashik, great. Lindsay is program director at the National Prioritas Project. Find out more about the report at nationalprioritas.org. Follow them on Twitter at Nat Priorities. Nat Priorities. I went to school with a guy named Nat Priorities. Also coming up later this week, we will reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at 10 in the morning, Chicago time, patreon.com slash this is so podcast shortly after at the same place. But right now it's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On the morning of May 30th, 1626, 397 years ago this week, residents of Beijing in Ming Dynasty, China, felt the ground shake and heard an enormous roar. It was quickly followed by an intense flash of light and an ear-splitting bang, heard not only in Beijing, but in villages more than 100 miles away. Okay, so shaking ground, intense flash of light, enormous roar. Uh, What year was this again? 1626. That was a long time ago. Yes, ear-splitting bang. I was originally leaning toward earthquake, but now I'm going with artificial human-caused explosion. The sky turned black for a moment, and then witnesses saw an intense, immense cloud, described as being in the shape of a, uh uh-oh, a mushroom, rising from the location of one of Beijing's most densely populated neighborhoods. As this happened in 1626, it's not a nuclear weapon unless this week in rotten history is about time travel, which means we're going to have to update and rewrite all the past rotten history segments. In fact, the explosion was from the Wang Gong Chong Armory, a Ming Dynasty weapons depot, and one of its most important military factories. Something or someone had ignited a massive stock of gunpowder, which exploded with such force that all buildings within more than a mile radius were destroyed. Historians call the Wang Gong Chong Blast, I hope anything other than the Wang Gong Chong Blast, one of the largest artificial non-nuclear explosions in human history, comparable to the ammonium nitrate explosion in the port of Beirut in 2020, which killed at least 218 people, injured 7,000 more, and left over 300,000 homeless. The gunpowder blast in 1626 flung houses, boulders, and trees into the air. According to one account, it sent a three-ton statue of a lion flying over the city wall. Human body parts came falling from the sky, heads, noses, arms, legs, and unrecognizable and very bloody body organs. In all, some 20,000 people were killed, and many more were wounded or left homeless. In its wake, word spread across China that the Ming Emperor, already presiding over an empire in decline, was in even deeper trouble now. The explosion was widely viewed as divine punishment for the already well-known incompetence and corruption of his administration, and it was anticipated that the sudden loss of a crucial depository of military technology would surely make things worse. worse. And sure enough, the Ming Dynasty, which had ruled China for almost three centuries, would fall from power 18 years later. That's right, incompetence leading to the deaths of 20,000 people, and it still takes 18 freaking years to end the Ming Dynasty. 
Things moved slowly back then. Yeah, I guess so. Now that's Rotten History and This Is Hell. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing. Most of all, thank you for listening. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Okay, so producer Will Ippen sent a link to a story that he says is just adorable. So you may have heard that a few weeks ago, the NAACP sent out a travel advisory recommending that tourists avoid Florida, saying the state was hostile to black Americans under Republican Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' leadership. The NAACP statement reads, On a seeming quest to silence African-American voices, the governor and the state of Florida have shown that African-Americans are not welcome in the state of Florida. Due to the sustained, blatant, relentless, and systemic attack on democracy and civil rights, the NAACP hereby issues a travel advisory to African Americans, and I would just say to all Americans, but whatever, and other people of color regarding the hostility towards African Americans in Florida. NAACP President and CEO Derek Johnson explains, Let me be clear. Failing to teach an accurate representation of the horrors and inequalities that black Americans have faced and continue to face is a disservice to students and a dereliction of duty to all. Under the leadership of Governor DeSantis, the state of Florida has become hostile to black Americans and in direct conflict with the democratic ideals that our union was founded upon. Former Florida governor and new and now U.S. Senator Rick Scott then released his own travel advisory. Keep in mind that U.S. Senator and former Governor Rick Scott is also a Republican. It states that this travel advisory that he releases comes to in direct response to the, no, not the NAACP travel advisory, but Senator Scott insists it's in response to, get this, quote, Biden administration attempts to erase capitalism like his adapting of a, or co-opting of a lefty term there, erase. Biden administration attempts to erase capitalism and the system that has brought prosperity to Florida and the entire United States. And apparently Governor turned Senator Scott has not visited the entire United States and its impoverished cancer alleys and sacrifice zones where capitalism has not led to prosperity, but massive suffering instead. And by the way, I don't know anybody who wants to erase capitalism as if to erase it from history, like Governor DeSantis wants to erase African-American history from American history. I don't know anybody who wants to erase capitalism. Nobody wants to forget about capitalism. Nobody wants to erase it from history. They want to actually confront and challenge capitalism. So I don't even know where he gets that idea from. Scott's travel advisory states, quote, Flora is openly hostile towards socialists, communists, and those that enable them. And he's constantly capitalizing socialists and communists, which I guess is nice. In other words, Florida does not support freedom of thought, expression, or speech. And if you exercise any of those, you will face hostility. But notice Nazis did not make Scott's list of those who Floridians are hostile toward. Florida is apparently fascist-friendly. Despite Scott claiming his travel advisory is in response to the Biden administration and not the NAACP warning about going to Florida, he then steals the phrase directly from the N uh, a phrase directly from the NAACP statement. Just like the NAACP 
P statement states, Scott says, let me be clear. But while the NAACP wants you to be clear that failing to teach an accurate representation of the horrors and inequalities that black Americans have faced and continue to face is a disservice to students and a dereliction of duty to all, Scott wants to be clear about something else entirely. Let me be clear, any attempt to spread the oppression and poverty that socialism always brings will be rebuffed by the people of Florida. In Scott's Florida, the oppression and poverty that socialism always brings is not allowed, but if it's oppression and poverty that comes courtesy of capitalism, totally cool. Fascists, capitalists, come on down and exploit and spread your hate everywhere. Scott warns travelers should be aware that attempts to spread socialism in North Florida will fail and be met with laughter and mockery, which I guess is a form of hostility, but notice he leads with hostility and then dowels it back to laughter and mockery as if to preemptively distance himself from the violence he instigated by insisting commies will be met with hostility in Florida. Scott then ends his travel advisory. That's definitely not a response to the NAACP travel advisory, which states that Florida is hostile to black Americans. And he ends with a little racism of his own. While in North Florida, all socialists and communists have to put up with is laughter and mockery, according to Senator Scott. He wraps up with, however, always an exciting way to end a statement, using the powerful word, however and one that in Scott's case usually suggests something racist is about to be said, although he'll deny it. However, he states, in much of Central and South Florida, the situation is far more dangerous for socialists as they encounter people from Cuba, Venezuela, and other parts of Central and South America, and the Caribbean, who have direct knowledge of and experience with the horrors of socialism. And they do have that direct knowledge because... In many of those countries, they democratically put socialists in power. They voted for socialists. That's why they have direct knowledge of them. Socialists in those countries are actually allowed to run for office, unlike here in the United States. And there's also that thing about Scott saying, you better look out for these Cubans and Venezuelans and all these people from Central and South America and the Caribbean. You don't know what they're going to do. Always great to deny that you're making a statement in re reaction to a statement about Florida's racism and then closing it with your own racism. <sighs> Again, I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Captooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Richard Norwood for producing. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked were written while I was really, really high. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.